0: it's hard being a trucking company. Running regular routes or over the road is a time-consuming process. And it's a capital-intensive affair that wears down equipment and drivers. Wouldn't it be easier to just put it on a train or find other means of transportation? Well, it turns out that many trucking companies are doing just that by diversifying their business to include intermodal operations as the money from their record profits over the past few quarters must be put to work. We examine this dynamic of trucking companies doing more than trucking in this episode of Loaded and Rolling. Good afternoon and welcome to Loaded and Rolling. I'm your host, Thomas Watson, Enterprise Trucking Carrier Expert here at Freight Waves, and we are doing it live out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. You might be asking yourself, what is intermodal? And how is this related to enterprise trucking? Do not fret, dear listener. It turns out that trucking plays a crucial role in intermodal operations which is defined as moving freight by two or more modes of transportation. Often cargo is loaded on intermodal containers and moved between trucks, trains, and cargo ships before arriving at distribution centers to move further down the supply chain. All of this was made possible by the advent of the modern shipping container created by a truck driver in the 1950s and now easily transferred from ship to truck to train, allowing our supply chain greater flexibility if speed is not a concern. A quick primer, according to the Wall Street Journal, intermodal accounts for nearly half of all Class 1 railroad traffic in North America and about a quarter of its revenues. It's a lucrative business and currently heavily consolidated. As FreightWaves reports, four railroads, BNSF Railway, CSX Transportation, Norfolk Southern Railway, and Union Pacific Railroad control over 90% of the rail traffic in the nation. Also, there is little competition. According to the Surface Transportation Board, railroad rates fell by 45% in adjusted inflation-adjusted dollars from 1981 to 2019. Try saying that 12 times fast. This lack of competition, lucrative margins, and record profits by publicly traded trucking companies means that for many, rail and intermodal operations are becoming a major part of their business portfolio. Joining us today... To do a deep dive into trucking's fascination with intermodal operations is FreightWaves' very own Mike Boutindish. Before becoming an analyst and market expert at FreightWaves, Mike was a senior sell-side equity research analyst and covered publicly traded railroads, suppliers, manufacturers, and just about anything involving railroad equipment. He is a CFA charter holder and has over 15 years of experience in the freight transportation industry. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: And rolling means uh, steel wheels rolling as, as well today.
0: Exactly. We are loaded and rolling on the rails. We're kicking it up. Looking at intermodal, and this is something I'm really, really interested in, publicly traded trucking companies like J.B. Hunt and Schneider, they're all planning to expand their offering. And so... You, you think of these guys as over the road. What? Why would they want to go into something like rail and intermodal operations?
1: So those companies you mentioned, JB Hunt and Schneider, they've been in intermodal a long time. And you know, you might think of them as being over the road carriers. I think of them as being primarily intermodal companies. I guess for Schneider, it's about half and half for their for their revenue. But for a company like JB Hunt or Hub Group um, and, and Schneider, uh, intermodal is really a core business for them. And, uh, you know, J.B. Hunt was really um, at the forefront of expanding the entire, you know, domestic uh, intermodal segment, um, you know, through its, its partnership, you know, starting in about 1989 with, with Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Um, so those are really sort of intermodal, you know, companies. Now, as for sort of why they would want to you know, continue to expand those businesses and, and, and why you have other trucking companies expanding into those uh, areas, it's it's really a better business in a lot of ways than over the road trucking. It's defensible. It's you know we can get into argument of whether or not you know over the road trucking is a commodity or or is it not a commodity? Intermodal service uh, is is not a commodity. I mean, you really have to have a certain amount of scale. You need to have the capabilities to coordinate all the different points of handling. It's a much more complicated process. And so um, to use a Buffettism, there's a there's a mode around the the, the franchise there. And it's also, um, you know, has better returns on invested capital. You think of an inter domestic intermodal company, their, their you know, main asset is, the, you know, the containers. You know, they may do their own trucking, their own drayage. They may, you know, use some owner operators there. But, um, you know, the containers are less asset intensive than over the road uh, equipment. So for all those reasons, it's better business and the companies that are publicly traded, um, you know, get rewarded for their intermodal franchises with higher, uh, multiples of earnings. And
0: I think that's interesting to think about, you know, you think of trailers over the road, they're going to break down tires, all these issues. You have the rail containers. Um, you know, one thing I read was that some of these rail companies do not have their own containers. And so is that when we talk about defensibility, if you're a trucking company in intermodal, that kind of allows you to kind of corner the market, so to speak. Right.
1: Yeah, so the domestic intermodal companies have historically been kind of the marketing arm for for intermodal. So at least for the U.S. carriers in Canada, they they do things differently. But really, the, the ownership of the containers there's there's some you know, pools that are that are shared, but but also um, you know, these big domestic intermodal companies have their own very large fleets of containers. And really, if you think about what capacity is out there, it's basically the number of let's say, domestic containers and how quickly those containers are being turned. So, you know, hear Hunt, you hear J.B. Hunt talk about adding 40,000 containers in the next three to five years with commensurate, you know, increases in, um, you know, terminal and, and investments and, and, and chassis and, and, and those things. I mean, that speaks to um, an increase in, you know, domestic intermodal capacity in the next, next few years.
0: And looking at that, especially with the playing Domestic Intermodal by J.B. Hunt, Hub Group, and Schneider, um, is there kind of like a differentiation? Would you want to be involved in international versus domestic, or are there any kind of different equipment involved?
1: So there are really two different segments. Uh, Those companies that we're talking about participate in the domestic intermodal uh, side of the equation, and so they're moving primarily 53-foot containers, so that's domestic equipment that does not leave North America. The international side of uh, intermodal is bet- is between, you know, the railroad and the, you know, steamship company. And those tend to be, you know, multi-year, you know, ag- agreements. And so do think of those as being two, you know, different segments. Um, you know, really over the last year, uh, domestic um, volume has has risen um, while international volume has has fallen. I mean, domestic had kind of the U-shape, you know, last year, but, but, you know, the volume's held up much better than International, um, you know, intermodal, and you know, it really doesn't matter whether the the goods inside those containers are, um, you know, imports or not. In in, in you know, it's, it's really the, the segmentation is by the you know the equipment. Are we moving domestic equipment or international equipment that that goes across, you know, sea? So so you know, really the, the companies that we're talking about here, are, you know, participate in the d- domestic side of the equation.
0: Now, once, it, once it definitely arrives in. And I'm hearing a lot of pressure, especially regarding environmental social governance or ESG initiatives. And it's becoming extremely popular as a way to offset carbon emissions. Uh, you know, do you think this is a way as well for trucking companies to try and uh, not only expand market share, but also try to get ahead of these changing uh, you know, investor expectations on what you're doing for the environment?
1: Yeah, that's been a big investment theme for a long time. Um, you know, I remember when I, when I was at Stiefel, there were lots of funds that you know wanted uh, ideas specifically that were you know green ideas. Like they even put it in like a green fund, and um, you know some of those portfolios added companies like JB Hunt or a Hub Group um, because Intermodal is more fuel efficient than the highway, you know, by quite a large, you know, margin, some say it's you know four times more fuel efficient. Also has about half the fuel surcharge. Uh, so it's just burns less fuel. I mean, it's, it's a more efficient way to move goods over the surface of the earth than, um, you know, than, than, than truckload. And maybe the big sort of variable going forward is, you know, are we going to go to a situation where we need to have scope three carbon emissions, where you're not just looking at the carbon that your particular business emits, but throughout the supply chain. And that would include, you know, moving goods, because I think the idea um, with carbon reduction is, is we want companies to, um, you know, locate plants and consider their supply chain holistically and and, and not just say, well, you know, we're, we're transferring these um, goods thousands of miles. That's not, you know, that, that's the what something the railroad does or the trucking company does. Whereas really that should be tied to the shipper also. So if that comes into play and you know companies start to get audited based on their carbon, you know that could have a big impact with companies looking to shift to intermodal. I think to this point, most of the motivation that shippers have for using intermodal is strictly the the cost savings in, involved. You tend to think of intermodal as being ten to fifteen percent cheaper than than, than truckload.
0: That's uh, an interesting point because, you know, earlier in the pandemic, we had a lot of backlogs along the rail. We had issues with containers. There were delays in services. And so, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, uh, we saw that shift from intermodal to truckload. Uh, have you noticed, at least in any of your research or what you're hearing, does uh, it look like now we're starting to see a recovery in intermodal now that uh, fuel mm. surcharges and other prices uh, and we're kind of kind of getting a little bit... Uh, less hectic compared to, you know, 2021 all gas, no brakes levels.
1: Yeah, we're seeing that a couple different ways. I mean, one of the ways that's really evident is just go into sonar and compare the domestic intermodal volume. And one of the advantages of sonar is we break out that domestic intermodal volume versus international, which, you know, you really see that there's two different segments when you look at those uh, segments individually. And the domestic uh, intermodal volume, here, the last let's say two months has really outperformed domestic truckload volume. You see, you know, domestic truckload volume, as we talked at length about on and, and freight waves, has, has fallen you know greatly. I mean, well over ten percent. Domestic intermodal has has hung in there, and so you see it you know in the data, um, and then you also see it from these companies you know reporting you know earnings and and, and saying that you know truckload conversions are in uh, intermodal units have been very strong Um, just listened to the hub group the other day they reported i think on, on thursday afternoon and and they said it's it's the best conversion that they've seen in in some time and there's a lot of different you know factors that go into that you mentioned you know fuel um you know diesel prices going through the through the roof right now but it's it's not just that it's it's the the intermodal service is maybe not at optimal levels like everyone would like to see but it's a lot better than it was um you know during the third quarter into the fourth quarter of, of last year. And then you have inventories that are rising, that are, that are, in, in some cases, there's, there's too much inventory. In other cases, there's, there's not enough depending on what, t- you know, product line we're, 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 talking about, but, um, you know, no longer do we have intermodal, uh, or inventories that are so, you know, narrow that you have to have the, the need for speed is, 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 is paramount where now shippers are more willing to sort of wait that extra sort of truckload plus a day or truckload plus maybe even a couple of days.
0: That was always interesting when I was a broker, uh, you know, you do truckload or you put it on the rail and you really had to figure out how soon do you need it? Because like you said, with rail, it can take a little bit of time for it to process through the network. Um, diving on this fuel, uh, you know, I've heard a few things, especially, I think maybe JB Hunt and Schneider, a few of these guys are talking about fuel, uh, fuel surcharges are going up and, you know, it's also trouble finding drivers. When we're buying, I think we actually have a price, uh, diesel truck stop price per gallon graphic we can throw up as well. Um, you know, uh, driver shortages, having trouble finding drivers, is that kind of why we're seeing like J.B. Hunt getting 10,000 more containers over the course of a year or, you know, these big movements? Is that also a contributing factor, fuel and drivers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, certainly if there's, you know, shortage of trucking capacity that this is one way to move, you know, goods. Um, you know, you do have to be a little bit cautious in terms of saying, well, intermodal is just going to be the relief valve for, for trucking. I mean, it, it doesn't Work that way because intermodal is so concentrated in the dense corridors. Uh, so if you know, shortage of, of, of truck drivers, you know, shortage of you know trucking equipment, it doesn't help you move a lot of freight that's time sensitive or that's in short haul. I mean, it's just a, most of the freight is never going to move intermodal. Um, you know, intermodal is really heavily concentrated in these you know dense corridors that are anchored by big cities. You know, you know co- lanes like LA to Chicago, LA to Dallas. LA to Atlanta, Chicago to Atlanta. I mean, it, it's we could go through the whole list of ten or eleven in you know thirty seconds, but um, you know, you know, really, it's it's not really that sort of relief valve. But I do think higher fuel prices um, you know can cause sh- some shippers to sort of jump the fence and sort of you know convert you know, you know try try using intermodal. Um, you know, it is a risk when when shippers that have always used truckload are, are going to try to use intermodal. They're not really sure what the service levels are going to be. Um, you know they don't want to look bad in, in front of their boss if the you know goods don't get there on time. So some can be kind of reluctant, um, but you know sort of once they do it, they sort of get you know used to it. It does tend to be, it does tend to be pretty sticky unless um, you know is it, really time sensitive. You know goods are really time sensitive, and then it may shift you know temporarily to, to truckload.
0: That was interesting to see that the graphic threw up earlier was literally 534 per gallon versus, you know, a few years prior, we were literally at 359 per gallon. So it was extremely, extremely crazy amount of fuel difference. And, you know, talked about earlier earnings. Trucking companies had record Q1 earnings uh, for most of them across the board that I've reported so far. Uh, is this a form? We're seeing this movement at intermodal LTL last mile, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised they wouldn't just put it in trucking. Is this because they need to put their money to work? Is this uh, maybe a redeployment, reinvestment in this capital for you know, future downturns?
1: I, I think they're investing in everything except regular truckload just because truckload is the least differentiated business. It's the one that doesn't have the barriers to entry. It's, it's the one that, you know, if if we're, if we're all right, that there's going to be a trucking bloodbath, that's the one that's going to be hurt the worst. I mean, LTL is a, you know, a much more concentrated, um, you know, business. Um, so that's, you know, much more defensible intermodal is, you know, some of these others like the, the brokerage is, is asset light, So even though there's not a lot, lot of, not a lot of barriers, entry in brokerage, you're still not taking a lot of capital risk. Um, you know, over the road trucking is kind of the worst of all worlds. It can be a commodity business and it's extremely capital intensive and you have to deal with all these regulations and there's liabilities if something goes wrong. So, Um, you know, over-the-road trucking is just the least attractive for a lot of companies putting capital to work in uh, freight transportation.
0: That's what I was curious about because, um, you know, looking at, like, uh, especially, uh, you know, owning the containers, owning the assets, you're making these redeployments of capital. I, I didn't really think that a lot of people, especially these largest trucking companies, don't understand that now they're moving away from trucking. I guess that's just the strangest thing for me to wrap my head around is you become a large multi you know a billion dollar publicly traded trucking company and the first thing you do when you finally get a lot of money is let's get out of trucking. Uh, is that almost the trend for most of them when they reach a certain level?
1: Yeah, I think you know diversification is important and having you know multiple you know asset streams is 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 important and um you know it, it makes a lot of sense from an investment standpoint that you don't want to you know you know be in the, in the in the worst in the worst business so I think we'll continue to to see that and you know, the, w- once those trucking companies reach a certain level, then you do have the, the the scale advantages and, you know, being in different segments, there's a certain amount of synergy there where, you know, your your asset, you know, light or um, your brokerage division can, you know, look at a load and say, well, you know, should this, um, you know, the shipper thought this was going to be a, a truckload move, but, you know, look, there's, there's excess, you know, container capacity in this particular lane um, and it's, a dense intermodal lane and it's not all that time sensitive so if you can you know work across modes i think there's some some synergy there
0: so it's like you're moving up and down the supply chain versus so instead of being a middle mile play now let's go up to the the first mile the last mile and then you know, we're going to have that defensibility by broadening our 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 uh, link depth instead of how wide we are in this truckload segment.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's particularly when you're dealing with huge, you know, shippers, and you think about you know who some of these big you know, customers are that are moving, um, you know, intermodal. I mean, they're 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 also moving you know truckload. They also have some sort of one-off you know shipments that you know they can use a brokerage you know services. So like the a lot of the big intermodal. You know shippers. It would be a lot of uh, consumer goods. Uh, you know companies, companies like you know Unilever or General Mills, and then and then also a lot of retailers. So you think of the big, you know you know retailers like a you know Walmart, Target, Home Depot, etc. Those are all big intermodal companies. Um, in, in addition to some transportation companies like UPS is one of the biggest. Uh, you know intermodal, um you know shippers. And so just you know these companies that once they get to a certain size, they can you know, help these companies with whatever, um, sort of transportation service they need is, is pretty valuable.
0: I wanted to circle back. We're talking about owning the assets like containers. Um, you know, I was always curious as to why, when it comes to, you know, if I'm a rail company executive, like BNSF or Norfolk Southern, you know, why would I not want to have my own assets or why would it make more sense to partner with a trucking company or a carrier to provide me with assets? Is there like a, a, a risk reward to that kind of a decision?
1: Well, mostly because the, the the containers are, you know, some of them are in shared pools. And so the containers will go from one railroad to the other. So kind of like how chassis are in pools that, you know, once the piece of equipment goes on another railroad, you don't want it to be, you know, not utilized. And so there are, there are some containers that are shared. But then, you know, also it's just historically the domestic intermodal industry grew up with these companies, you know, serving as the marketing arm. For, um, for, for for intermodal i mean canada is a little different because canada is mostly that international intermodal segment and so it's mostly the, the the railroads dealing directly with the you know container ship uh lines but um in in the u.s you know domestic is the largest is the largest segment and so those do tend to be on kind of one-year contracts and these these companies that that have the that are the truckload based intermodal companies they can Arrange um, to have the, the full intermodal you know, package, the you know the, the, the drayage on either end, you know, consolidating the billing, consolidating any you know, damage claims, um, you know, all of those things sort of act as the the marketing arm and the customer service arm.
0: And I was, uh, when we were mentioning earlier, we actually have a graphic talking about volumes in in terms of, you know, you talked about earlier that rail is highly concentrated in certain areas, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, we're looking at Elizabeth Norfolk. Um, Is that something where we're talking about on the West Coast versus East Coast and that East Coast ports, and there's some labor negotiations coming up. Is there the potential for intermodal to gain even more ground because... Uh, you know, dealing with strikes, dealing with all this other stuff out of some of these ports. uh, Is that a potential play uh, due to either disruptions or costs?
1: Yeah, I think it is. You know, really the last several years, the big trend has been the East Coast ports have taken share from the West Coast ports. And the reason for that is the per mile cost to transport a box is cheaper on the water than it is on the surface. And most of the population, let's say 45, 50% of the U.S. population is on the Eastern time zone. So if you can move the, the box closer to where it ultimately needs to go on the water, that's cheaper than bringing in through L.A., taking it all the way to Chicago or New York. So that's been kind of the big trend. As a result of that, there's been all these investments on the East Coast, things like you know huge expansion of the various ports, on the, on the on the east coast all up and down the east coast has been tremendous you know raising the bay bridge in um, new york area all, all, all of those you know type of investments and um, you know that had been the trend up until the pandemic and you know the pandemic with all the supply chain issues all of a sudden speed you know got to be more important and so you saw a, a, a share shift back to the west coast because it's faster to have what they call the, do the, the land bridge option which is you know bring it through la, you know, take it intermodal to Chicago or Dallas and onward. Um, so, you know, b- because the the, the pandemic co- caused more time sensitivity, that's where the West Coast ports gained share. You know, going forward, um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a question. I mean, there was so much, you know, share gained by the West Coast ports that, you know, caused all those congestions and all the, the container ship uh, lines, um, you know, queued up, you know, near the San Pedro Bay, et cetera. Um, so, you know, going forward, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, this summer, the ILWU uh, set to have, you know, a new contract rolling over, you know, July 1st. There might be a work stoppage. There might be a work slowdown. We don't know. Even if it's a slowdown, you know, that would be pretty disruptive. You know, it's a thesis of some that uh, there's going to be more movements coming in through the East Coast to avoid that, or there's already been a rerouting of, of, of shipments. And so that graphic that you had up, you know, compared to this time a year ago, all of those those West Coast locations are all in the red. You know, volume that's below where it was a year ago. All those East Coast locations, or most of them at least, you know, see. You know, Elizabeth, Norfolk, and uh, Charleston all up nicely. L.A., Seattle, et cetera, all, 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 all down. So that that may be because of the congestion at the at, at the West Coast where those the ships you know queued up, or it also maybe you know a lot of shippers just want to get those goods. Into the U.S. From there, they'll figure out a way to get it to the to the final um, you know destination. But I think the long term trend holds that the East Coast ports going to gain share from the West Coast ports, but it will move you know back and forth. There's also the potential that all these um, you know shutdowns in China are going to make goods uh, more time sensitive because they're going to be delayed, and that's going to encourage more shipping through the West Coast. Although they, some of those goods might just spoil, they'll get here so late. You'll have the Halloween, you know, costumes in December, you know, again. Um, so there's all those issues, but but we'll see a lot a lot of moving parts there.
0: A lot to look forward to, Mike. I really appreciate you having you on as well. Uh, you've got the stock out talking about CPG, as well as you do a lot of commentary regarding the intermodal from your experience. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm gonna have you on again. We're gonna talk about CPG because for a lot of people, I don't think they understand just how important it plays for the trucking industry.
1: Yeah, happy to do that. Good to see you.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, Don't touch that internet dial. Uh, We are basically coming to a close here on our wonderful program today, but stay tuned. Every Tuesday now is the new time at 1 p.m. Eastern. If you wanna see us do it live, otherwise check us out on Apple, Spotify, and any other streaming service or tv.freightwaves.com. That's it for today. I'm your host, Thomas Watson. Join us next week. We will do it live.